You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. A very good morning to all. It's for me a, a pleasure to be back at ODI, of course, and to join all of you in discussing an issue that has uh, received quite a bit of attention lately. Uh, a very important issue, of course, but I think it's important as we begin to talk about it to make sure uh, that we uh, reduce some of the hype uh, around uh, the issue and really get the story and the facts around what's happening uh, on the ground uh, correct and that we share uh, the same data that we're working with uh, before we start to reach uh, con conclusions. It's true that some countries are in crisis and some are nearing crisis. It's not true that the whole continent is about to fall off the cliff. So I think it's important to really, uh, as we talk about Sub-Saharan Africa, remember that there are many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, experiencing different things. There is a, a potential debt uh, crisis in some countries that we need to really put our heads together uh, to talk about. So the development community has been rightly concerned, I think, about um, the rapid pace of debt accumulation in the region. Uh, when I participated in the Debt uh, Management Facility Stakeholders uh, Forum in Brussels last May, uh, alarm bells had seemingly already reached a crescendo. There was the IMF's uh, uh, March 2018 policy paper, Macroeconomic Developments and Prospects in Low-Income Developing Countries, that really uh, sounded the alarm bells around this. But alarming, and I think sometimes alarmist commentary, has continued since then, uh, with countless blogs and uh, admonitions to country authorities and creditors alike. As valid as they are, I think these concerns must remain grounded in the difficult reality of Sub-Saharan African countries needing large volumes of financing for meeting the Sustainable Development Goals. And let's remember that borrowing is in and of itself not a bad thing, that the issue is not to never borrow, but to do so by safeguarding debt sustainability while maximizing the returns to development. And those were certainly the expectations in the heyday of uh, the highly indebted, heavily indebted uh, poor countries or HIPIC initiative, whose primary objective uh, uh, was to help expand fiscal space for development spending. It is also important, I think, to recognize that the changed composition of debt since HIPIC, that is with some countries being able to tap into international markets for financing, that change composition is indeed a positive reflection of their transformation and transition from low-income countries to frontier market e economies. Being a feature of development, this market access is to be valued. The response to increased debt vulnerabilities uh, cannot be returning to having no other choice uh, than traditional donor financing, but is instead responsibly and transparently managing new financing choices. These were the key messages I delivered in Brussels, and from this perspective, I will cover five things in the about 40 minutes I'll use for my remarks. I first want to discuss my experience as a key player in Liberia's uh, debt relief process during 2006 to 2008, with the view to drawing relevant lessons for current uh, debt challenges, and especially for those countries already in debt distress. Uh, 
I will then present a brief overview of the evolution of Sub-Saharan Africa's debt and of its drivers and composition. And following that, I'll comment on whether that debt has contributed to investment. I'll then review the key policies required to reduce debt vulnerabilities while creating fiscal space and tapping other sustainable financing for development spending. And I'll conclude my address by pointing to a number of issues needing more attention from creditors and from the international community. Liberia first, then. When President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's first administration took office in January 2006, and when I joined as Minister of Finance, Liberia was emerging from a decade of economic mismanagement, uh, followed by 14 uh, years of uh, conflict, uh, with a shattered economy and the bleakest of social conditions. And given the debt overhang uh, inherited by the new government, a key priority was uh, restoration of Liberia's relationship with the international community, clearance of long-standing external arrears equivalent to some 600% of GDP, and debt relief. With no financing having been uh, included for Liberia, and nor for other countries in debt distress like Somalia and Sudan, no financing included for them under HIPIC, this proved to be a monumental challenge, and notwithstanding the speedy negotiation of an IMF staff monitored program, or SMP, and two years of good performance under two successive SMPs. The structure of the 4.5 billion stock of arrears was fairly evenly distributed with multilateral arrears of 33%, bilateral arrears of some 32%, and commercial arrears of close to 35%. Close to all of Liberia's debt was in arrears, with the total nominal de debt stock only about 200 million more than the stock of arrears. Now, clearance of arrears to the international financial institutions, or the IFIs, the IMF, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, was for us the most urgent uh, area of focus since without that, no fund uh, financial program nor normal IDA financing or AFDB financing was possible. The World Bank's arrears were cleared in December 2007 through a bridge loan provided by the United States that's, that was repaid with the proceeds of a development policy operation, financed with an exceptional allocation of IDA uh, grant resources. And the AFDB's arrears were cleared in the same month through its post-conflict countries facility, PCCF, with one-third of the costs covered uh, by bilateral donors and two-thirds by the PCCF resources. Uh, but it was not until March 2008 that U.S. bridge financing again was used to clear the fund arrears, uh, a new poverty reduction and growth facility, or PRGF, and extended fund facility, or EFF program, was approved to repay it and financing resources were obtained for Liberia to reach the HIPIC decision point. There was no established source of exceptional financing at the fund to finance its uh, portion of HIPIC debt relief to Liberia. Instead, it took months of uh, quote-unquote passing the hat among IMF member countries uh, to contribute a partial distribution of resources they held in the fund's special contingent account, or SCA1, as it was at is, is still called, the first time that such a modality had been used. And a month later, Liberia received a generous rescheduling of most of its bilateral debt 
uh, through the Paris Club. Negotiations with the remaining non-Paris Club cre uh, bilateral creditors then began, as did the resolution of Liberia's commercial debt through a cash buyback scheme under the World Bank's uh, debt reduction facility for either-only countries. The buyback required a very steep discount uh, with the assistance of uh, first-rate uh, external advisors that we had at the time. Uh, it also required ultimately overcoming most of the jockeying there was of the vulture funds. I know today it's hard to look back at Liberia as uh, having had commercial debt, but it did have a, a lot of commercial debt, reflecting where it had fallen from. In the past, Liberia was able to borrow on the, on the financial market, so a lot, a lot has changed since then. So in addition to uh, demanding uh, so-called upper credit tranche conditionality under the SMPs that we had, arrears clearance to the IFIs, and the new PRGF EFF program, Liberia's ability to reach the HIPIC decision point required that we refrain from borrowing, any borrowing at all, concessional included, for more than two years at a time when our financing needs were, of course, the greatest. And that, in turn, uh, required commitment at the highest level of government to back the Ministry of Finance in not allowing any sectoral ministry, agency, or state-owned enterprise, SOE, to pursue borrowing and to really be on the constant watch out uh, for attempted non-compliance with that. So let's be clear, I think, that sub-Saharan African ministers of finance will always have difficulties uh, maintaining control when incentives for sectoral ministers are to find loans for new projects and if presidents and prime ministers don't, uh, don't hold the fort, don't hold the line. With the very scarce capacity, keeping the, SP and the SMPs on track, not borrowing, and meeting our the HIPAA decision point conditionality, including an interim poverty reduction strategy, all of these responsibilities really left very little uh, room for anything else in the <laughs> Minister of Finance's world and in, uh, in sometimes in the President's world. So with that narrative of the debt relief process, are there lessons or takeaways uh, from the Liberian experience that are relevant to the current uh, debt challenges or debt distress faced by some African countries. I just signal the need for focus, tenacity, commitment at the highest political level to prevent torpedoing the debt relief effort or the maintenance of debt uh, sustainability. And I think this first lesson uh, applies uh, to all of sub-Saharan African countries. I see other takeaways that are relevant to the two African countries uh, that have been in protracted debt distress and are still hoping to benefit uh, from HIPAA debt relief, Somalia and Sudan. I should say, parenthetically, that Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe is actually in a league of its own, having already cleared the, its arrears to the fund, but struggling uh, to find a solution for its uh, World Bank and African Development Bank arrears. In any case, the second element that Somalia and Sudan don't yet have, but which Liberia fortunately uh, achieved in two years, is a strong enough track record of reform, notwithstanding a number of SMPs. The third difference I see is that for different reasons, uh, donor support has been absent or uncertain, and uh, these countries don't yet have the full backing of an influential bilateral donor. Uh, an influential enough donor in forging the needed support of, of others. The fourth 
takeaway is uh, that if and when the required track record uh, is established, financing of the funds portion of debt relief for Somalia and Sudan will also likely confront the uh, challenge of employing the SCA1 modality, a uh, difficult process. And finally, although we could have benefited from even higher levels of uh, grant financing while uh, working towards our HIPIC decision point, I think it's fair to say that Liberia had more pre-arrears donor financing and consistent support than we've seen in Somalia. And the interdependence, I think, of state building, security, and development would seem to argue for a more agile solution uh, to debt distress in fragile states like Somalia to facilitate their earlier access to more adequate levels of financing to exit fragility. But colleagues and fellow participants, um, a decade on, I must say that all is not entirely well on the debt front in Liberia. Although Liberia was hard hit by the major twin shocks of Ebola and a commodity price decline, the increasing fragility of its debt sustainability also stems from some policy missteps. The last Bank Fund Debt Sustainability Analysis, or DSA, reflected in the June uh, 2018 Article 4 report, assessed Liberia to be at moderate risk of debt distress. However, it cautioned uh, the move to a high risk of debt distress if the base case projected financing gap through 2023 was filled with external borrowing in excess of the anticipated $1 billion. And recent non-transparent contraction and attempted contraction of manifestly non-concessional debt to finance inflated road con uh, construction ambitions suggests an eventual transition to high risk of debt distress. And should this materialize, it would illustrate the difficulties of protecting the fruits of reform and debt relief, even with strong laws on debt contraction and management, such as Liberia has in the Public Financial Management Act, when those in charge have very different priorities. Let me now leave Liberia before I get overly emotional and turn, <laughs> and turn to the region at large and to the debt challenges uh, currently confronting it. As is by now well known, debt stocks and interest payments have risen sharply in the region and especially in oil exporters. Compared to 2013, the median public debt to GDP ratio at end of uh, 2007 was about 20 percentage points higher, uh, while the median interest payments to revenue ratio almost doubled. Debt service costs for oil exporters and other natural resource producers in particular have become onerous. In Zambia, for example, in 2011, um, interest payments on debt were about 20% of the money spent on uh, health and education, and by 2017 had risen to 50%. Nigeria's debt service increased from 22% of revenues in 2016 to more than 60% in 2017. And with some delayed fiscal consolidation now underway among oil exporters and with the expected regional uh, growth um, rebound, debt levels in 2018 should decline uh, slightly. And some improvements in debt servicing capacity are likely in some highly indebted countries with improved uh, revenue performance. But having said that, it is still sobering, very sobering, to note that more than a third of sub-Saharan African countries are now in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress. From only seven in 2013 
the number of countries in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress more than doubled to 15 in 2017. There are 17 if the two protracted arrears cases of Somalia and Sudan are included. Compared to the period before 2013, uh, the, list of, uh, the list of countries now contains a variety of countries at high risk of debt distress, ranging from low, uh, lower middle income or frontier economies like Cabo Verde, Cameroon, Ghana, Sao Tome, and uh, Principe, and Zambia on the one hand, to fragile states or low-income countries, such as Burundi, the Central African Republic, Ethiopia, and the Gambia, on the other hand. Apart from middle-income Republic of Congo and low-income Mozambique, the, the list of countries in debt distress includes only fragile and conflict-affected states, Chad, Eritrea, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. Now, the main drivers of debt uh, sustainability deterioration in oil exporters were large primary deficits, exchange rate depreciation in some countries, and delayed adjustment to the 2014 oil price shock. And although still worrisome, the pace of debt accumulation was less rapid in other countries, where consistently higher growth rates, uh, in the case of non-resource um, intensive countries, helped to contain the debt to GDP ratio. Debt sustainability deteriorated in some other countries due to negative growth, internal conflicts, or pandemic, in the case of Liberia and Sierra Leone, lack of uh, transparency, reporting of previously hidden debt, as in Mozambique, and below-the-line operations, for example, operations of the state-owned enterprises, and incomplete recording of public transactions. Now, uh, despite the region's increased debt vulnerabilities, Investor appetite has remained strong uh, with longer uh, bond terms for some countries this year and differential bond spreads uh, for high versus uh, non-high grade countries. And with uh, sub-Saharan African sovereign bond issuance reaching record levels of $7.6 billion in 2017 and close to $14 billion in the first half, only the first half of 2018, the expansion in borrowing from China and other non-Paris Club uh, bilateral creditors over a number of years, and increased domestic borrowing in some countries, the composition of Sub-Saharan Africa's debt has changed significantly. As the share of foreign currency denominated debt uh, increased, and as the share of bondholder and private uh, bank debt rose, so have uh, vulnerabilities increased. These changes have meant more exposure to market, rollover, and foreign exchange risk for some countries and debt resolution challenges in others, as with the Republic of Congo, where debt to China dominates and collateralized debt is larger than previously realized. Having said all this, um, I should stress that not all cases of risk of debt distress or high cases of debt distress are China's quote-unquote fault as some increasingly aggressive commentary would have us believe. In some cases, the deterioration is clearly linked to a larger share of commercial borrowing. I found the Jubilee Debt Campaign's analysis of uh, African debt statistics published just last month very instructive in, in uh, this connection, and I recommend that you take a look at it. Let me conclude this overview of uh, Sub-Saharan African debt by noting that in some countries, contingent liabilities from SOEs and the accumulation of domestic arrears has created additional fiscal uncertainties 
and rising public debt in a number of countries has further increased banks' exposure uh, to the sovereign and reduced the room for lending to the private sector. And that's a disturbing uh, development that doesn't really bode well for the region's uh, recovery because um, this has re resulted in a declining credit to the private sector and we've seen that crowding out in, uh, evident in countries like uh, Angola, in the Central African Economic and Monetary Union, and in the Gambia. I look forward to hearing more about the region's debt dynamics from the first session of the conference uh, this afternoon. Now, has all this debt uh, actually increased investment? And is that, in fact, uh, the right or the only question to, to ask? I know from my own time at the IMF uh, that uh, the policy dialogue with sub-Saharan African countries was dominated by this issue, in particular in financing infrastructure investments, which countries pushed uh, quite, quite strongly as the rationale for revising the fund's debt limits policies, policy. And the policy paper on low-income developing countries I referred to at the beginning of my remarks finds that increased public investment contributed to debt accumulation between 2010 and 14 and 2017 in many countries, but was a key driver in only a minority of cases. And the finding of a drop in investments in many low-income developing countries is highlighted in that paper. But the story, I think, cannot and should not end there for at least three reasons. First, physical infrastructure investments are not all that's needed for growth. Indeed, spending on health and education, much of it recurrent, is critical to the SDGs and necessary to make infrastructure investments beneficial. Recurrent spending on maintenance is clearly essential to keep infrastructure in good shape. Second, where one does see many new roads, ports, etc., as we've seen in Equatorial Guinea, for example, they actually raise questions about the quality of those investments. And third, there are circumstances under which investment could have little impact on aggregate demand in the short term, given its large import content. There are also conditions when investment has limited impact on aggregate supply in the medium term if roads lead to nowhere. And there are cases where investment has limited impact on foreign exchange earnings because roads lead to an expansion of domestic production of goods and services, but not to increase exports. So not all investments are growth enhancing. Indeed, project selection has been a major shortcoming in financing provided by some non-traditional donors and is not much of a concern for private, private lenders. In addition to being concerned about countries with expanded debt, at high risk of debt distress, and with little or no high quality investments, we must also draw lessons from countries with significantly increased debt levels but at low risk of debt distress and with continuing robust growth, countries like Rwanda. <coughs> I will now turn to corrective policies to contain debt, reduce debt vulnerabilities, and expand more sustainable development financing. Sub-Saharan Africa's debt, especially those on commercial terms, will clearly need to be contained and restructured for those countries already in debt distress. While there is good news for uh, co containing debt in countries' plans for fiscal consolidation, implementation of such plans is often postponed. 
And after significant delays, we see some adjustment now underway in oil exporters, but it is largely attributable to the revenue impact of the recent uptick in fuel prices and to cutting investment rather than to a stronger, stronger overall revenue effort. And the fuel price increase may unfortunately lead to a relaxation and further delay of adjustment efforts. Policymakers must acknowledge the reality of stronger economic recovery in the region and safeguarding debt sustainability not being possible without steadfast implementation of fiscal consolidation plans. And significantly improved domestic resource mobilization is a key aspect of growth-friendly fiscal consolidation and is in any case critical to increasing fiscal space for development spending. The major attention uh, DRM has received since the 2015 Addis Ababa Financing for Development Conference reflects the fact that it is an underexploited source of sustainable development finance. Indeed, the average sub-Saharan African country could increase its tax-to-GDP ratio by three to five percentage points. And this will, of course, take time, but countries have much to gain in exerting political will to confront vested interests and reap underexploited low-hanging fruits from, for example, reducing tax exemptions, excise taxes, and property taxes. In what will remain a resource-constrained environment for some time, however, two additional urgent priorities are to improve investment selection and increase investment efficiency. Public-private partnerships, or PPPs, are possibly a source of infrastructure financing, but only for those countries with strong institutional and legal frameworks and who can mitigate the associated fiscal risk by carefully assessing, disclosing, and budgeting for them. The current financing constraints underscore the importance of developing capital markets in sub-Saharan Africa with a view to limiting capital outflows and channeling more non-debt creating flows, especially more FDI, to the region. Strong macroeconomic fundamentals remain a sine qua non for this, as do improvements in the investment climate better institutional quality, and better governance. Continued strong investor appetite for sub-Saharan African sovereign bonds, despite debt vulnerabilities, suggests room for more risk sharing by investors, and perhaps through alternative funding vehicles or instruments to cover refinancing risk, uh, for example, GDP-linked bonds. But I think some management of expectations is, however, required with respect to still untried GDP-linked bonds, whose technical details are still being worked out, uh, even for advanced countries. I look forward, though, to, to learning more about uh, the potential for new financing, uh, financial inf instruments from colleagues in session two uh, this afternoon. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, beyond the search for and development of more sustainable sources of financing, some SSA sub-Saharan African countries will need to rein in their public investment ambitions in recognition and support of an expanded private sector role in propelling growth. In effect, and as the recent SDG costing exercise makes clear, the SDGs are simply not achievable with a predominantly public sector focus. While many countries fully recognize this in word and deed, 
Some only pay lip service while pursuing expensive borrowing for low-quality investments. And the move to blended finance uh, with uh, more catalytic uh, role of the MDBs in unleashing private sector financing and the G20's compact with Africa are welcome developments that could support governments in this connection. But it is critical that these initiatives begin to show early results and impact in light of the ticking clock to 2030. And recent developments in some countries underscore the need for more attention to strengthening transparency and debt data to avert so-called debt surprises or undisclosed debt as in the Republic of Congo and Mozambique. Despite a tremendous amount of technical assistance over the years, debt data in Sub-Saharan Africa remain weak with most countries reporting only central government rather than general government data covering SOEs. In many countries, guarantees and extra budgetary operations are not covered, with a resulting significant risk of contingent uh, liabilities. Some of these issues can be uh, improved, of course, by more effective IFI technical assistance and training. But sub-Saharan African countries also need to demonstrate political will again and discipline in curtailing, better managing, and reporting such off-budget operations and contingent liabilities. Uh, moving on now to the responsibilities of creditors and the broader international community, I first want to welcome the recent rollout of the IMF World Bank Debt Sustainability Framework, uh, the revised uh, Debt Sustainability Framework, or DSF. It went into effect in July, and its use, I think, should support the improvements urged by stakeholders for some time. In particular, the DSF promises to remain balanced in its treatment of risk and borrowing opportunities and to reflect more country specificity. Its adaptation to the evolving financing landscape for uh, facing low-income developing countries, including uh, increased market risk, contingent liabilities, and domestic debt, and adjustments to the methodology as well should permit a more robust assessment of risk of debt distress. Significant bank fund support to countries on implementation of the DSF is envisaged, including with more guidance on broader debt coverage and assessment of fiscal risk. And to better manage challenges around uh, the change debt structure, more TA and training will be needed on contingent liabilities, on domestic debt, and tapping into international financial markets. And, and such capacity, uh, capacity development must focus more squarely on building stronger and more enduring debt management institutions and on facilitating, facilitating the translation of improved capacity on DSAs and medium-term debt strategies into actual policy making and decisions on contracting debt. And in this connection, weak capacity in the key oversight institution, parliament, is a critical area not yet getting sufficient attention from development partners. The absence of basic capacity in the legislature is a significant constraint to maintaining debt sustainability in my own country, as I'm sure it is in, in others. And I look forward to the discussion of technical assistance and training needs in session three tomorrow morning. And fellow participants, I think we'd all agree uh, on the need for new lenders to conduct more thorough due diligence in lending, including disciplined use of DSAs based on the new DSF. 
And this will mean, I think, battling the prevailing incentives we see for delivering projects, regardless of whether they are needed, efficient, or whether the associated loans can uh, be repaid. Clear modalities for debt restructuring is another critical priority. But there has at times, I think, been some overly optimistic or even unrealistic expectations, I think, in some quarters that China will eventually join the Paris Club in its current form, never mind that a central road role for the Paris Club in the debt restructuring architecture is at odds with its increasing marginalization as a creditor. There is thus an urgent need to instead focus energies on working with new lenders to design a framework that recognizes their greater <coughs> debt share and which convinces them that transparent debt restructuring is in their interest. And presumably, work towards this end is underway in the IFIs and the Paris Club, but not yet with visible results for outsiders. We'll, I'll, I hope, be educated uh, on this and hear a lot more about debt restructuring challenges from colleagues in session four tomorrow morning. There has been much talk, I think, and agreement on the need for greater transparency in lenders' practices. The World Bank, again, and IMF are strengthening their outreach on this, and the G20 has been urging lenders to subscribe to the so-called principles and operational guidelines for sustainable financing. And the bank and fund are also supporting steps towards making that initiative effective by requiring regular uh, self-assessment by G20 uh, members. And for their part, I think earlier this year, private creditors established an Institute of International Finance, IIF, Debt Transparency Working Group to promote increased transparency in and reporting of their lending and broad consultation to ensure wide acceptance of the principles being worked on by new and non-bank creditors and the early finalization of uh, uh, this initiative is, is necessary. We should learn more about this and other steps to increase transparency from session uh, two this afternoon. But I would underscore the need to resist the temptation we've seen in recent gatherings to ascribe non-transparency to China alone and instead stress that all creditors must enhance transparency. Let's not forget that the non-transparent debt episodes we've seen in Mozambique have nothing to do with China. I believe there is also broad consensus on the importance of better monitoring and reporting of public sector debt and guarantees supported by more effective technical assistance and training from the bank, fund, and other donors. I'm sure we'll get a commentary on the challenges around this and a good update on DMF support in subsequent sessions, so I will not say much more about this. But suffice it to say that making such monitoring and debt reporting uh, more effective will require stronger political will again to ensure sectoral ministries and SOE compliance with Ministry of Finance and Debt Management Office requests for data and information. And while this is unquestionably the borrower's responsibility, partners can provide useful leverage from their support. I'd like to close my remarks by pointing to three other issues that need more attention going forward. First, in the recent debt acceleration we've seen, debt drivers were fundamentally domestic, but push factors were also important. Uh, that is, uncon unconventional monetary policy, or UMP, in advanced uh, uh, countries, 
and the associated high uh, risk appetite of investors clearly also played a part. Notwithstanding the resulting welcome expansion in sub-Saharan African frontier markets financing choices, the UMP episode illustrates the need for advanced countries to be more attuned to potential negative spillovers of their policies on uh, poor countries. Second, more attention to the volume instruments and windows of IFI financing for frontier market economies could potentially limit their recourse to more expensive commercial borrowing and sovereign bond issuances, as I argued in a 2016 essay on the IMF's financing. Indeed, some, some of the rules governing assets, access to IFI non-concessional financing could be usefully reviewed. And in this connection, the 2016 clarification, as they called it, of the IMF's blending rules and the World Bank's 2017 capital increase package, wherein IBRD uh, will prioritize adequate financing for blend countries and for IDA graduates, all of that is to be welcomed. Uh, follow through full implementation and concrete results from uh, these important initiatives will be critical. Finally, development partners must safeguard and indeed increase their financing for the poorest countries. Concessional financing for low-income countries from OECD DAC members contracted by 20% between 2013 and 2016 at a time when commercial borrowing accelerated. The IFIs and G20 creditor countries cannot credibly, cannot credibly continue to insist that low-income countries at high risk of debt distress rely solely on grants and concessional financing, especially for, you know, without expanding the volume of that financing. They can't do that, especially for those fragile countries whose debt-to-GDP ratio deterioration is largely explained by pandemic and weather-related shocks. The push to expand uh, financing for the poorest countries um, from the very successful IDA 18 replenishment was a much needed affirmation, reaffirmation of the international community's commitment uh, to supporting the poorest countries. But more supportive action is necessary from bilateral partners not yet meeting their GDP aid commitments. So fellow participants and colleagues have uh, spoken at some length. I'll stop there and very much look forward to uh, our discussion. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>